Friday, can you take me higher? Well, when the world was introduced to Ted Nugent, the last thing anyone thought was that a massive power ballad was in his future. But that's what happened when uh, the Motor City Madman joined forces with Styx's Tommy Shaw, Night Ranger's Jack Blades and future Leonard Skinner drummer Michael Cutlone to form the damn Yankees. So, yes, cheesy as they come, but what a riff. What a massive power ballad. Um, now, uh, Raj uh, put uh, an idea forward to you all uh, this afternoon. Uh, what's a twist? What is a little twist in your recipe um, that you make it make it your own? And I've, get, I've, I've had quite a few emails on that, and I want to come back to that on Monday. So what is that? You can email me. I'll look over them. Email the panel at rnz.co.nz. Quentin says... A few cardamom seeds in the chocolate cake mix mm. and a bit wow. more in the chocolate icing. Zoe, that sounds nice. It sounds amazing. I add Chinese five spice to my hot chocolate. <laughs> Ah. And it's amazing. Okay. Are you sure? Yeah, just a little bit, not too much. Just a tr- little, little bit. Oh. Chinese five spice tea or hot chocolate. Uh, Heather in Tauranga says, Yes, Raj, I'm doing grated toasted fennel seeds in certain dishes. Um, so, very, very good. Um, people want to know uh, whether or not Raj can do any more about the banana peel. Um, no, that's... <laughs> We've done that. But Raj, feel free to take that issue and uh, talk about it. Uh, I, I like. I just wanted to say that I like how Heather keeps secret where she uses her toasted fennel seeds. <laughs> um, that stays secret. But in the break, I was going to say Raj said something quite insightful about the banana peel and about parenting, and I think you should share that because it was very good. Well, it was just that I was saying that you know, for the husband in the front seat to just say. I'm an adult, so so that's why it goes. Yeah. Is is the is the kind of equivalent of something that we've always tried to avoid saying as parents, which is mm. resort to be, the the sentence because I said so, you know, which is just like a demonstration of power rather than putting forward a reason or an argument. Uh, and we've always tried to avoid that. And for a for a kid in the back seat to just hear that mm. an adult announcing something is okay because they're an adult is not a great example. Oh, so, Thank you for sharing. Makes great sense. Uh, although uh, Ian says, look, I travelled to Gisborne and five... Uh, I travelled to Gisborne and back five days a week, throwing two banana peels out on the way down. I never saw them on the way back on the same day. Great show. Thank you, Ian. Uh, thanks for sharing. All right, the panel are NZ National. Now, the New Zealand Blood Service is in need of an extra 40,000 blood donors in the next year. About 117,000 people are blood donors, but that number has only grown by 9,000 donors in the past five years, and yet the demand is growing. Yesterday, we had the New Zealand Blood Service's Asuka Burge, who, even with the shortage, is not supportive of people paying to give blood. But we had a considerable response to this issue, so we decided to come back to it. And someone who does support financial compensation is Professor Peter uh, Jaworski, a Georgetown University expert in the economics and ethics of blood and plasma donation. He's authored a report on this with the New Zealand Initiative. Uh, Professor Jaworski, welcome. Uh, Thanks very much. Good afternoon. What's the case for paying someone to give blood? 
Uh, there's a very good case to be made for paying people to donate blood plasma. The case is basically we have uh, lots of countries, none of them collect enough plasma to uh, meet the needs of patients unless they compensate donors. And that's true for every country around the world. And all of these countries around the world are overly dependent on, in particular, the United States of America. So you say that every country that permits the commercial model to operate within its borders has surplus plasma collections, and every country that doesn't has deficits. That's correct. And actually, New Zealand was the last country that did not compensate donors that was self-sufficient, but that was back in 2014. Since then, there's just, there's just no country. But, Peter, is it medically, ethically right? Is it acceptable that I get offered money merely for doing this public service, donating my blood to help others? I mean, I think it is. Uh, we pay nurses, for example. They offer a public service. They do what they do out of the kindness of their hearts. Uh, if we didn't pay nurses, if we didn't pay doctors, we would have shortages of nurses and we would have shortages of doctors. You know, the point of having a system of plasma collection is to make sure that we collect enough plasma to meet the needs of patients. We're not doing that. And if we're not doing that, then other considerations, like maybe you would think that you know, people should be donating out of autism or we should be promoting community solidarity. That's not the point of collecting plasma. And if we're not meeting that need, then really we should be looking at a different system. OK, Peter, around the panel, we've got a panel with us and I'd love to jump in with some thoughts and questions. Uh, Zoe. Yeah, I mean, I was thinking about this, that I, you know, back when I was a student, this would have been very attractive to me. Um, I'm not so good with needles but i wonder as well though when we talk about giving people compensation for their bodily fluids can i just mention sperm bank banks for a minute you know um right but, <laughs> you know, yes. right right sperm yes. banks uh, but peter what does good compensation look like in this space mm. Mm. so um different countries do it differently in the european mm. union germany austria hungary and the czech republic they offer somewhere around 30 euro in Canada, it's closer to $50. In the United States at the moment, it's about $65. Wow. So I think that's what you can expect, those amounts. Yeah, well, there you go. There's um, okay. your weekly student food budget right yes. there, you know, yeah. and then some. Um, and <laughs> so, Fair point. Yeah. Okay, Raj. Yeah, I mean, on the face of it, it made sense to me, you know, benefiting donors and increasing our domestic supply. Um, what I wanted to ask Peter was, um, is there any downside or any worry about perverse incentives created by allowing financial compensation for donors? The answer is no. I mean, just consider this. The United States provides 70% of the plasma for the entire world. We wouldn't be doing that. And of course, in the United States, they compensate donors. Um, we wouldn't be doing that. New Zealand would not be importing therapies made from American plasma unless it was perfectly safe. We now have more than 30 years of evidence. We haven't had a transmission of any kind of infection from the use of these plasma therapies. Uh, it's, it's equally safe. It, there is no safety difference, whether we pay donors or don't pay donors. 
uh, the result is the same. Um, well, the, the so, will keep going, Raj. No, I just my oh, that that's that's very reassuring. And mm-hmm. the the other side of my question was, like for example, you know, if if unmonitored, if someone kind of donated too much, or that was kind of uh, damaging to their health, mm-hmm. like if they went too many times within too short a space, um, could could that happen, or is that regulated? It's regulated everywhere. Right. In right. the European Union, you're allowed to donate. In some places, it's once a week. In other places, it's once every two weeks. Right. In the right. Czech Republic, you're allowed to donate every two weeks, and we don't see those kinds of problems there. Well, the World Health Organization, they say, quoting, that voluntary, non-remunerated blood donors are the foundation of a safe, sustainable blood supply. Yet here you are, an ethicist, seeming to disagree with that. I do disagree with that. <laughs> I mean, I think it's fine for blood, and we are meeting the need for blood. But I don't think it's okay for plasma. We are just not meeting the need for plasma. We have shortages consistently. Patients have to put up with shortages all the time. The most recent one was during the pandemic, but even before then, every once in a while... Uh, we're out of immunoglobulin. This is an essential medicine. The, the WHO recognized this as an essential medicine. And we are leaving patients to have to worry about where they're going to get their immunoglobulin. We need to fix that. So why then, Peter, are there only five countries in the world that fully allow payment for plasma? I mean, part of it has to do with the history. Uh, I mean, in the 1980s and the 1990s, you saw the tainted blood scandal all over the world. Many countries then decided to make it illegal to compensate people for blood donations. Uh, We also don't distinguish blood donations when it's used for transfusion from plasma donations that are used to manufacture uh, therapies. I think both of those things play a role in why historically we've held on to the model that we have. We're getting a lot of response from this, Peter, so uh, thanks for uh, again highlighting the issue, and I appreciate your time in New Zealand. Yeah, thank you very much. That's Professor Peter uh, Jaworski, Georgetown University expert in the economics and ethics of blood and plasma donation. Quite an interesting, interesting topic, isn't it, uh, Raj? Yeah. Because there are many here who actually don't feel comfortable with it, uh, getting payment, and yet there's, there, there are some good points that Peter makes. Very much. I mean, you know, the reason I asked whether it can be unsafe to people's health is Mm -hmm. from actually watching documentaries on people who are homeless in the States. And one of the sources of income they rely on is regular plasma donations. So I was just wondering whether you can do it too often in a way that damages your health Mm -hmm. when you're really desperate for for the money. Mm -hmm. Um, Zoe? Yeah, I I feel almost that you you can have the option. I feel like you should have the option because obviously this is a critical you know of critical importance. Uh, so if you want to donate your blood and your plasma and you want to do that for free, then awesome, that's amazing, and two thumbs up from me. But if you are in a situation in which you want to take compensation or you need it, then I'm also down for that. So I think that it should be your choice. All right. Uh, the panel, uh, NZ National, 15 away from five. Uh, lovely to have you with us this afternoon. It really is just wonderful.
uh, as always, the panel. Now, education has been discussed a lot this week. It's fair to say the sector is facing some issues. The Secondary Teachers Union and the Education Ministry went back to the negotiating table today uh, to find a solution to their pay dispute. But secondary teachers are vowing to continue rolling strikes until they receive an acceptable pay offer. We had a parent who voiced his frustration over teacher strikes earlier this week. John O'Skipwith was on the panel. He set up a petition and he spoke to us about it. Four more strike days before the end of term. Uh, two next week. You know, two in one week. That's, that's, that sort of kicks you in the guts um, a bit. Uh, yeah, so, you know, just pretty frustrated that um, we as parents can't do anything about these strikes. We're not the ones that are involved in the negotiation. So now to a post-primary teacher's perspective with us is Benjamin Martelli, a teacher at Alfriston College, Monaco. Uh, Benjamin, kia ora. Uh, Wallace. Great to have you here, Benjamin. Explain to our con- uh, listeners across the Motu, what is it like as a post-primary teacher at the coalface right now? Uh, it looks like getting ads to go teach in Australia for seventy to $80,000 starting because we would consider that over these sort of pressures that we have here. Um, I've been teaching two years now. I get a weekly pay about $800. Uh, my rent's $650. Uh, you do the math for what's left. I've got a baby on the way. It's not a big apartment. My partner works too. She's also a teacher in the same position. Um, and yeah, I, I always wonder, I'm a social studies historian teacher, whatever happened to a single income family and how did we slip so far back? Which it was John, I wasn't it? And I really, you know, sympathized with him. And for me, it's kind of a call for solidarity amongst working people because a lot of the criticism we've had is one thing, why are you asking for to match with inflation? So many other people aren't matching with inflation. And to that we say, you should too, right? You get, we should all you be get, able to keep up huh, in that way. You get $800, your rent is $650. Let's bring on the panel, Zoe. Oh, I'm just, I'm shocked. I'm speechless, to be quite frank. I'm sorry to hear that, Benjamin, but congratulations about your baby coming. That's very mm. exciting for you. Um, I uh, I have a union background. When I was here at Radio New Zealand, I was one of the lead PSA union delegates, and while we were here, mm-hmm. um, we closed the gender pay gap and we had a huge pay increase, one of the largest in the last few 10 years of New Zealand RNZ's history. Um, I'm all about solidarity, and I, I totally appreciate, um, not that I have children, um, so I, I can't talk about what it's like to be a parent, but I appreciate the parents' frustration, but it shouldn't be targeted at the teachers at all. Um, We need to meet here somewhere in the middle and and make sure that we're paying our teachers properly. It's a hard gig, and I don't know if, gosh, I would probably take that offer and move to Australia. 70 to 80,000 start rate. That sounds pretty good right now, but then you've got to live in Australia. (laughs) Stay there, Ben. Let's bring in Raj, and you can respond to both. I mean, I I agree with with the parent who said that it is very unfortunate that the education of young people is being mm. disrupted as a result of this. But, uh, but you know, one um, 
and I had more prepared uh, earlier to say on this, but actually, along with along with what the teacher just shared, um, one comment that um, really kind of put things in perspective was one that you began the program with, Wallace, from one of your uh, from one of your listeners, who spoke about the fact that um, in the seventies. Uh, a backbench MP and a teacher earn the same amount, and um, and today that that gap is you know unthinkable to close. And we've not even we're not even talking about the wider environment in which you buy or rent a house or dream of doing so, and uh, and how far away that seems. Mm-hmm. And I think that comment really put in perspective that MPs can can vote themselves these pay increases, and all other essential workers cannot. And so, yes, I, I actually do think that um, the long solidarity with the with the kind of the bigger picture and the longer term objectives um, um, is is the kind of main issue here. Uh, kia ora both. Finally, uh, Ben, to those out there listening and those that may not sort of be familiar or understand or can't understand the issue, what would you like to say to them this afternoon? Yeah, well, again, one of those criticisms, and you just said that too, Raj, about how the children's learning is being affected. Ultimate, well, this is the way I see it, and it's sort of a forest for the trees kind of situation where it's we lose some days here or we literally lose years. So mm-hmm. here's a statistic for you. Um, this year, in 2013, untrained or unqualified teachers filled positions at 15% of schools. This year in 2023, 48% of schools had untrained or unqualified staff teaching in you know, your English class, in your math class. Wow. That is an entire year where you don't have somebody who really knows how to teach and what their subject is trying to get through to those kids. And so that's a long period where your education is being failed. And that's what we're trying to stop, right? And so it is a forest for the trees kind of situation. Um, yeah, we're just going backwards at a crazy rate and yeah. people are leaving at a crazy rate. Uh, and then we all have all of these issues as well, like the kids that I am in front of every single day. We've got one of my students who came to me who hasn't been coming to school because her dad's disabled and her mum's depressed. And we have counsellors, I think, one counsellor for a school of 800 and I'm also expected to be the mentor and the help for these people I have one of my students who was actually involved in some of the RAM raids like we have students who are in that depth of social dislocation and concern and we're the people who are trying to every single day help them but at the same time teach them to write a paragraph about the New Zealand wars right like it's just an impossible task and we're spread so thin that any, everybody ends up getting nothing sort of thing. Like, I can't actually get quality time because you've got all of these issues of inequality that are facing us and just to actually get to the teaching time and amongst all yeah. of that, it doesn't happen. Ben, it's and really nice. It's going backwards with our literacy and numeracy and everything. Nice to have you on the program, Ben. I really appreciate it and uh, all the best. Uh, we'll be in touch. That's uh, Ben Martelli. Teacher at Alfriston College of Monaco uh, there. Uh, you're on the panel, RNZ National. Now, finally, I have this wonderful memory of playing Friday night indoor bowls as a teenager. Friday night, local hall, Nelson. Always overboard. It's quite hard. I was useless. 
but it was followed by a nice cup of tea, a sausage roll and one chocolate Wheaton. Well, over 500 indoor bowls, bowlers are in New Plymouth for the New Zealand Champs, what is wrapping up tomorrow. It's been running since 1950. I thought I'd just get in touch with them. With us is President of New Zealand Indoor Bowls, Michael Lawson. He's also a New Zealand rep in the Matt Blacks, holds national titles. Welcome, Michael. Welcome. How are you? Very well. I loved this game growing up, but guess what? I found it quite hard. It's easy to overbowl in indoor bowls. <clears throat> oh, definitely, definitely. I mean, you know, indoor bowls is like that's the grassroots, the family halls, everyone going down, having a cup of tea, playing those club nights. That's the one. Um, yeah, and and it's probably growing like the national championships. Um, there's not many cups of tea around, um, but um, yeah, it's a sport that anyone can master, but um, takes a lot of patience. It sure takes a lot of patience. How's it going uh, in the latest uh, 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 nationals? Oh, it's great. So yeah, as you said, there's over 500 players here. So we've completed the singles, pairs, and the uh, triples were finished off yesterday, um, and we play an Open and a Masters event, so the Masters are for the over-60s. And, yeah, um, it's been really good. We've had some new winners. Uh, our peers in the Open, we actually had a father-son combination, which is, you know, what our game's all about, the fact that you can wow. come out and play with family. Father-son, yes. Yeah. Now, uh, Michael, we've got a panel here. I don't know whether or not they want to jump in <laughs> to have any indoor bowl. I mean, have you tried it, Zoe? It's quite, it's quite yeah. difficult. It's Yes, it is incredibly hard, and I've also tried outdoor bowls as well. I, there's a local bowls club near my house. They're quite is, different, though. Yes, very obviously one's indoors <laughs> and one outdoors, Wallace. <laughs> um, but I wanted to find out um, from Michael what the average age is of bowlers and indoor bowls and what the best cost Costumes have been at the national championships, right? So the average the average age is probably quite hard because I think most areas in the clubs it is uh, still seen as the over sixties dominate. But when we get into things like our, our North and South Island teams that were just named, which involves twenty uh, ten men and ten ladies from each country, uh, each island, um, the average age is probably closer to the mid forties. Yeah, we have a huge following of younger players. Um, our secondary schools championships um, see quite a number. Oh, is that right? Um, yeah, yeah, they're actually um, growing even bigger now. Um, and it's just obviously our work um, to move the secondary schools into like keeping them interested. Oh, that's cool, that's cool. Uh, uh, cheeky, cheeky listener. Have you seen Monty Burns bowling on The Simpsons? That's what I picture when Wallace said he played indoor bowling. <laughs> yeah, wow. Happy Friday to you too. Raj. Yeah. Well, um, I don't know a great deal about uh, bowling and specifically not indoor bowling, but the descriptions of Wacky Wednesday and the costumes just reminded me a little <laughs> or made me picture a kind of New Zealand version of the Big Lebowski. Okay. And so that's that's the image I have of <laughs> Wacky Wednesday. So, yeah. so. And, dude. I mean, and, and it's a concept that's grown. Um, you know, back in my days, back in the early 2000s, you know, we used to dress up as jesters and all sorts of things. Won a national championship in 2006, dressed up as SpongeBob SquarePants. <laughs> um, you know, and, and it's just growing from there. And it's just that little bit of fun, like... Um, it's mainly around the triples because the triples is the newer um, discipline at the national champs. Now I think this year 
um, again, we had um, a guy called Simon Poppers in our Auckland who just seems to have been painted from head to toe as a different character. Um, love and, it. Yeah, came along as the Joker. Oh, I've got to try yeah. it again. I just, I just love. I, I'm not a, outdoor bowls. You can easily just ram at home, can't you? But with indoor yeah. bowls, it's delicate. You've got to be like the touch. You've got to have yeah. maneuverability. You've got to have talent. You've got to have those fingers. Oh, exactly. And it's actually. Um, interesting that a lot of the outdoor bowlers that represent our country actually all start in indoor mm. and, and it's a great way because you seem to be able to play a lot more heads and see more shots so anyone that wants to sort of go further in outdoor indoor is actually the right. one to actually jump onto Good on you Michael, thank you for that I didn't even get a chance to chat to you Zoe George about Drive to Survive that'll, be, that'll have to be next time um, but for now Zoe George, Raj Chakrabori a fantastic panel, thank you uh, have a great weekend stay with uh, Lisa Owen and Checkpoint, thank you to Sally Ward my producer, I'm back 3.45 Monday I will see you then